Do you know someone deserving of a Servies Award? The Servies Awards celebrate the men and women who have poured, served, seated, greeted, and worked tirelessly to help us thrive. Help Yelp for Restaurants recognize their efforts by giving back to those who have given us so much. Winners receive a beautifully designed Servies trophy and a $3,000 tip. That's right, $3,000 in their pocket. Voting begins now. Visit theservies.com today and nominate that special someone for a chance to win today. No purchase necessary must be 18 plus in a U.S. resident. Six nominated contest winners will receive a prize of $3,000. Nominations must be submitted between July 31st, 2023 and August 23rd, 2023. See the official rules available at theservies.com. Now here we go. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. What does a truly holistic model for a restaurant look like? Today we chat with chef D. Brandon Walker to find out. The chef has turned his latest concept, the art room, into a working social experiment. He serves fast, casual, and fine dining fare. It's a completely indoor and outdoor concept with a high-end art gallery nestled in the middle. And if that wasn't enough, he's implemented universal tipping across the board and has cross-trained his entire team. He's doing things differently and has come by the show to discuss what's working, what hasn't, and what's next. My arc has been basically fine dining to nonprofit to restaurateur to fast casual back to fine dining as a private chef. That's kind of been my journey. I've been a chef now for over 20 years, about 22 years since culinary school. I came out of the box and got to work with some really awesome chefs. It's a long list. I got really lucky and I got really burned out as well. So that first six years of the fine dining grind. And that's what I wanted to do. That was my intention coming out of culinary school. I wanted to work at the top places and I wanted to work 60 hours, 70 hours a week. And I just, I wanted to get yelled at. But after about six years of that, I found that 
environment just so overwhelmingly toxic, the management style and, and all of that that was going on in the 90s and early 2000s and that whole school. I just got really burnt out. And that's what led me to the nonprofit world. And I became a teacher and I was a teacher for the next decade. And I taught a very special type of person. I taught people that were going so many you know, difficult situations, uh, including experiencing homelessness, previous incarceration, drug rehab, you name it, PTSD, veterans, high-functioning autistics. Yeah, and ages from 18 to 60 years old. And those were my culinary students. We ran two programs, um, the culinary training program at the Bread and Roses Cafe. And these two programs worked in conjunction with one another, and there was a great synergy there, and one kind of fed the other. And we used the techniques that we learned in class every day to just elevate the level of food and the level of service for all the folks that were visiting the Bread and Roses Cafe. And this was all out in Venice Beach, which is very near and dear to me. I spent a lot of time there as a youth, and through that time, I graduated over 1,200 students out of there. And not only did I develop as a, as a chef, but I developed as a person. And I was always looking for the intersection between nonprofit and for-profit um, because part of my job was to place my students into internships. And I got a lot of doors uh, slammed in my face. And I got it because I came from that world and people are... You know, dealing with slim margins and no time and hey, people that can jump right in and do what I need them to do and I don't have any time for this. And so I think that's what ultimately motivated me to put those two parts together. I was looking for that intersection and that's when I opened my first restaurant, the Mar Vista. And then now we're a couple of restaurants down the road and we got another one in the works and I'm super excited. So there's a bunch to unpack there. And I think the first thing to talk about is as a chef, you are a coach, you are a leader, you are a teacher, but the teaching part is different. And you look at the social dynamics within a kitchen. And I think that we all know what environment is required for people to learn, right? And it's got to be this inclusive, encouraging. I mean, if high schools ran like kitchens, I think that the dropout rate would be much higher. But I would assume that as you evolved your culinary techniques, because you certainly learn by teaching, you also evolved your thought process. Typically, we do whatever we experience. However, we were taught is how we teach others. And I'm curious to know, especially coming from people with almost no culinary background and then trying to teach them the basics and then higher level techniques, what is the most effective way to teach someone how to become excellent? You know, I really think that it's uh, leading by example. And I think that's still the approach that I take to this day. I try to show people how to do the tasks. I always preach that we're one unit. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Everybody should be able to do everybody's job. I cross train everyone in all positions. That's part of my whole labor model. Super important to me that I don't pigeonhole certain individuals. I want them to feel like they have opportunity to expand. I think that people do better when they're encouraged and also when the boss actually takes the time to show that technique. And so that's what I do. I mean, I take that time. I show people exactly how I want something done. And then the second time I'll come by, if it's not being done right, I'll do a little reminder 
And then maybe then by that third time, we're questioning our hire possibly at that point. But <laughs> I find that people do better when you're encouraged and not overly criticized, certainly not. But I really think it goes a long way. We had a big event last night. I was busting suds. I like to do that. I like to spend half an hour doing the dishes. I think it's really important that everybody in the restaurant sees the chef owner kind of do all the roles. Let's talk about your evolution as an entrepreneur. So like you said, you launched the Mar Vista. So you've already had a couple of careers, right? Working as a professional cook, then a professional chef, then as a teacher. And then you make this entrepreneurial leap. What did you learn about yourself through that process? When you look at the difference between operating someone else's business and then operating your own, what were the unexpected surprises, both pleasant and unpleasant? What were the lessons you learned in the early days? I think that right off the bat, I learned that I was a little naive. I think there was something to all of the responses that I'd been getting while I was in the nonprofit world from chefs that were operating for-profit restaurants. There was some truth to it. And I think that, yeah, I was a bit naive. I think that there are certain folks that excel in certain roles and you can't always blend all of it. I think that I got caught up in trying to out-chef everyone as well. And I, that certainly wasn't my mission. When I opened the first restaurant, I think that was a big part of it. Just the one-upsmanship, trying to stay on top, trying to be hot, trying to be cutting edge. And I think that in my pursuit of that, I kind of left a lot of that nurturing and that teaching that I had preached about when I first made that transition and I did all my hires and I took on all because a lot of my staff was populated with folks that had come out of my program. And I do think that I got caught up in that chef one-upsmanship. Yeah, for sure. So I think I got a little away from, away from my mission in that, in that sense. And I also learned that, yeah. There are certain people that are better in certain roles. And I also learned that harsh reality between the back and the front of the house was a force to be reckoned with. I thought that I could completely come in and dismantle that. And there was a lot of pushback when I was first tinkering around with my labor model, which is now something that I use, universal tipping, where everybody shares in the tips equally. And yeah, so that took a while to not only perfect, but to just convince everyone. Of. So I think those three things were the major slap in the face when I first opened the Marvista. We opened huge. We did three and a half million our first year. We were booked every night solid. We were doing 200, 250 covers for a year straight. And I think opening that big and that hard and that fast, I think, yeah, a lot of those realities, especially those three things were magnified. How would you do it again? If you could do it all over again, what would you change? Well, fortunately, <laughs> so halfway into that that opening year, I opened the Marvista Grab and Go, which was first fast casual, and it was relief valve for me. I could cook more casually there. There wasn't as many expectations from the diners. People weren't pissed that their reservation was 15 minutes. Yeah, so that was great. So I got to do it a little bit different directly across the street. So I had two places that had challenges in and of itself, but one certainly was a relief from the other. 
And now with the art room, I get to blend those two worlds. And so basically, I got to do my initial hiring with my labor model in place. And so everybody knew exactly what to expect. I wasn't trying to change midstream. I think that's rad. And I think that the way that I've blended my fast casual menu into a space that is very elevated and that was built with a ton of intention. And we could go in a little bit more about the art room and the concept and the space itself. But yeah, I think that I am actually getting to do it again. So in doing background research, there's a bunch of press on you. But interestingly enough, almost none of it's on food. It's all on people. It's all on your perspective as it relates to the industry. And so I want to take a few minutes to unpack high level the landscape of the industry as you saw it and the new reality that you envisioned. And then we'll talk about what that looks like in execution. I think all of this kind of is motivated from the way that I came up as a chef and that toxic environment that I experienced and my sincere desire to create something that wasn't like that and um, to kind of restore the idea of working in a restaurant as a great career and not just a job, not something that was transitory in nature, but something that was permanent and it was rad and you could make a living and all of these types of things and the disparity between the front of house and the back of house pay. Yeah, I was trying to fix all of that, of course. I think I just got more entrenched as I was a teacher. And part of my job as a teacher was to make people excited about getting into the industry and to paint a positive picture of their potential future in this industry. And that meant a lot to me. And I wanted to take what I had been incubating um, all these years as a teacher, and I wanted to make it work. And I wanted to basically create a living model of my theoretical stance, my virtuous ideas about what the industry could be. And that's the mission that I'm on. And I think that's why most of my press, it's that kind of overpowers even the finer minutia of the cooking itself and the food. Obviously, I'm a pretty good chef. <laughs> my food is pretty good, but I do. I get caught up in talking about more loftier, wide-ranging topics of social justice and whatnot. It's hard. Here's the question that I have, because I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find an entrepreneur, especially in our business, that didn't come up through the ranks, that doesn't see the value in the basics, right? 40 to 50-hour work weeks, two days off in a row, subsidized health care, 401k and retirement plans. When you start a business, you think to yourself, I can't do any of that today, but I am going to do that at some point. I'm going to build a business better than the businesses I've worked for in the past. Because if that wasn't the ambition, you'd just go work for someone else. And then you butt up against it, right? It's you're six months in and you've tried things. I remember, I mean, forget universal tipping. And we did it. It was a painful process. But when we went to a whole house pool, I mean, we lost a third of the staff. And these were really good people that were talented, that loved the industry and loved us and had learned a lot from us, but they just weren't willing to go from sixty-five dollars or $70,000 a year down to $50,000 a year for the betterment of the greater good. I can get into the nuts and bolts of how this, is, this has happened. I've been able to raise the average hourly 
with minimum going up, we are currently starting people at 18 and then anywhere from 18 to 21. And I've been able to increase with the universal tipping on average $5 an hour. So now we're talking 23 to $28 an hour. And that feels really good. I've got amazing management. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a great managers, my kitchen manager, my bar guy, got to have great management, got to have great leadership. But we do tend to hire folks that are a little less experienced. We're hiring smiles. We're willing to teach. And I, I think that's a continuation of my teaching background. I'm not afraid of that. I'm all about taking someone who wants a shot to be a bartender, let's say, or to work in the kitchen without a ton of prior experience. And they're stoked about that hourly, hourly, all across the entire staff. We worked with Robert Egger from the LA Kitchen and obviously of DC Kitchen fame as well. And my experience was very similar to yours in the way that what I found was is that formerly incarcerated people, formerly homeless people, they would come to us from the LA Kitchen with some skill, not Michelin rated fine dining skill, but some skill. But there's a word you used a couple of minutes ago that I think is lacking in so many aspects of our industry, which was they were excited. These people were excited to work with us and they were excited to learn. And my old business partner, Sammy Mansoor, just opened a restaurant in downtown LA in the fashion district. Joyce. Okay. Yeah. Right around the corner from us, actually. Yep. And so his staff today, are the same people that we trained at Peru and Proper five years ago. But because they learned from us, they went from dishwashers to line cooks to sous chefs. They came back because there's loyalty there. They left very successful jobs that they had with people that loved them and they loved them. And they came back to us because there is loyalty in teaching someone a skill that will benefit them the rest of their life. And there's more investment and there's certainly a lot more mistakes that are made along the way. But I'd love to get your perspective. I don't think that you can overstate that, a point about the loyalty. I have amazing retention. I just do. I mean, people are always floored. I've got guys on average that have been with me from multiple restaurants for over five years. That's average. It's very typical of my operations. It really does feel like a family. I've got tremendous loyalty, and it is for that very reason. And that's invaluable, honestly. Let's talk about the art room. So this was a big venture because it was just full of big ideas. In building it out, you created this indoor-outdoor concept. Everybody is cross-trained. You've got universal tipping. It's interesting because you could have gone with just one big idea and then left everything else tradition. But you didn't. I mean, it's a fast, casual concept with fine dining elements. It's a lot of different things at once. So how did you put all these disparate ideas together in a way that you could package it up and sell it? Maybe I had too long to think about it because of the pandemic. Because <laughs> we actually started planning pre-pandemic and then everything just got waylaid. So I had a nice year and a half unexpectedly in there to just look at it. And so maybe I came up with too many ideas. I don't know. No. So it's a 2,500 square foot, 50 seater with a 30 foot long full bar. And then there's another 1,500 square feet of natural lit fine art gallery. And it's just like they're separated by these huge glass doors. There's two major openings that connect the two spaces. There's a big patio. We have this one-of-a-kind 
state-of-the-art facade. It's this amazing gate that opens and closes. It creates all these different configurations in the front of the building. There is a third portion of the entire space, which is about 8,000 square feet total, which houses Ox Architecture, which is my partner in the restaurant and also is their headquarters. They have about 40 employees there. So it's this megaplex of art and there's just art happening everywhere with the food, with the gallery. And it's a unique space. There is no other restaurant like this in Los Angeles. It's not like, oh, they have a few pieces of art in this other room or in the foray or whatnot. It is a legit gallery. You feel like you're walking into a major gallery when you walk in. It feels like a museum in there. And it's just my attempt to add value to the space. That's something that I thought a lot about. I was thinking in this age where people are ordering food on all of the online platforms and you've got these modeler kitchens where they're taking like proprietary restaurant recipes and then reproducing them all under one roof. And then you've got Gold Belly and, you know, other sites that where you can get your favorite bagel from New York the next day or something. It's like, where are we all going as an industry? How as a restaurateur can I add value to the space? How can I make it something that you just have to be there to experience, something that can't be delivered to you on your couch. And that's something that I started to do with the Mar Vista. At there, it was all about the live music and we were doing the uh, live recordings and we were offering those to our customers, kind of as like an exclusive club, like reward system, which was really cool. But here I'm trying to upgrade the experience of a Tuesday mid-morning breakfast burrito, but you also get to see some amazing mid-career award-winning art. And I think the fine dining aspect, we do this private dining experience that you can book from 12 to 48 guests. It's great for special occasions. We do a lot of corporate outings. And there you get my more upscale seven-course. That's what I've been doing, seven-course tasting menu. And I do wine pairings and all of that. And it's separate space because you're in the gallery. It's a very unique environment to have dinner. And we can control the temperature, the audio, the lighting, all of that stuff. So you really feel like you have your own space. That's a very unique experience. And so I was able to get that in there. And to utilize that space also for the culinary, but also have kind of my fast casual neighborhood favorites and and just be the right size. I think we nailed it on this one. And I think that we have so many different revenue streams built into it because we really are great for any kind of like special event. We have the gallery where we are selling art and we are making money as a gallery. We can also do dining experiences in the gallery space. We have a full bar and we are a neighborhood joint at the same time. We're very approachable. Let's talk about that because I thought that was one of the most compelling facets of the concept is for most restaurateurs, they're sweating covers right? If I'm going to make more money, I need to get more covers in, which more often than not is compelling people to do something that they're not naturally inclined to do, right? Whether that's come and dine at a restaurant on a Tuesday or alternatively choose my restaurant over another restaurant on peak. But that's not how this is structured. So when you look at all of your different revenue streams, is that a product of the pandemic? When you look at your career history paired with all of these evolutions that came out of the pandemic, is this the new model for a restaurant that it is 
fast casual paired with fine dining paired with catering and events and all of this stuff i think it's extremely difficult to just be one thing i think that's hard and especially with our attempt to pay people a living wage i think it's extremely hard harder than it's ever been before and it's something that when i look at a restaurant from now on and i think that i did from my very first one, but now I've got three and under my belt and we're building a fourth. I think that I always think of it in terms of multiple revenue streams. I think that that is a absolute necessity for me. I don't think I would ever build another restaurant that's just going to be open from five o'clock to 10 o'clock and upscale casual reservation kind of place. I wouldn't do it. I think a big part of success, I'm not talking professional or financial I'm talking personal is having a really clear indication of where you want to land, right? This is the finish line. This is when enough is enough. I will feel like I've accomplished my goals with the goals that I have set when I have done this. How does that work for you? And when you create that balance as somebody with a bunch of stuff going, I mean, is it built around time with family, hours of the week? What are the metrics that you're tracking to define success for yourself? Because that will ultimately determine what's an opportunity and what's a distraction, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the more time that I have outside of the kitchen and the businesses is a metrics for me (laughs) to gauge success. And I think that's very common. I want more of that work-life balance. And when I get it, I feel like I'm doing a good job. I feel like I'm empowering others. I feel like I'm delegating well. But for right now, I really am in work mode. I don't think that I see that far ahead. I feel like I've been practicing my entire life to be as good as I am at what I do right now. And this is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting to work a lot. And my mission really drives me and fulfills me. I really want to leave a legacy of lasting change on this industry. I want to restore the luster to working in this industry. I want people to make more money. I want people to share in the willingness and the responsibility and to love their jobs. And yeah, I'm like, I'm in it. And I feel like this is my time to go. So Maybe ask me that again in 10 years. I don't have an escape planned at this point. I don't know what that looks like for me. I just know that my work and when I see my staff excel and feel good about the work that they're doing, I think that is what keeps me jazzed every day. And I kind of see what I do as far as being healthy. I really take a lot of pride in that because I do feel like what I eat And that time that I have to take care of myself in terms of exercising and like, you know, de-stressing outside of the workplace, I feel like just makes me stronger so that I can come back and just be that much better of a leader. Honestly, I think that fuels what I'm doing. And I feel like I've been practicing my whole life to be right where I'm at. What should we steal from you? There are so many chefs, so many restaurateurs out there. And we're all best in the world at something. We all have these tactics or tools or strategies that we've internalized, we've adopted that just work and work consistently. What are yours? What could we steal from you? I think of my staff first. I think like a teacher. I think how am I going to simplify something if necessary for someone to be successful at doing it? I think that lose the ego. Bottom line, if you could take an ingredient out 
If you could simplify a process, do it. Don't be so attached to your own chef ego that you can't think of the greater good of the efficiency of your business and the success and the good feelings that your staff is going to have. So I just feel that as chefs who transfer into ownership and running the entire business, I feel that we carry along some of that chef ego with us. And I think that it can be really detrimental. I think that's a hole that I fell into. So I'm just speaking from personal experience. And I just think that's a slippery slope. And that's my biggest bit of advice for chefs who become restaurateurs, who then are tasked with running the entire show. Sometimes you got to simplify stuff. So that's what I've done. And it served me very, very well. The industry is filled with all these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Again, I think that the future of the restaurant industry is uncertain in that I just feel like what is going to be so great about actually going to the restaurant and being there and experiencing it and how we can compete in this future that looks like you could have whatever you want whenever you want it. I think that there's multi-pronged, right? This is a multi-pronged problem. And my answer to these questions is to have a staff that is joyful and professional and all about hospitality. And that's a huge part of that thing that you can't have delivered to you on your couch, right? And then the other part is to build these interesting spaces that have more to offer than just a fancy plate of food. I think that when you bring spaces that are built with intention and you've got staff that truly love their job, and I think that that's something that's been missing as certainly when you combine those two things, I think we've got a winning combination. And I think that restaurants, if we're able to do that, are here to stay, even in this constantly evolving landscape.
Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with Guest Manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Chef D. Brandon Walker. For more information on the chef and his restaurant, visit theartroomdtla.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.